This morning we will begin session five, and our concentration will be Ephesus. Give you a little introduction to uh, all seven of the letters, and then we'll focus on the little letter to the Ephesians. But before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, once again, we come with anticipation and we come with a desire to know something more of you and that you would uh, open up your word that we might better understand it, that it ultimately may motivate us and encourage us to uh, strengthen our walk and to be obedient to you and to allow you to have your will done within us. And we desire that as we learn these things, that uh, part of what you desire is that we communicate some of these to others as well. So we just pray that you would also open opportunities where we might be able to share some of the things that we learn, some of the principles, and that we may be able to be the lights that you desire us to be. We commit our time to you and desire that your Holy Spirit would work amongst us in a mighty way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at uh, the seven churches, and uh, last time I gave you a very, very brief introduction. Uh, We'll pick up from there. Let me just remind you of a couple of things that we we mentioned in terms of uh, the pertinence of these little... Letters to seven individual churches. I said there's a variety of ways of uh, interpreting them, particularly the one that's prominent is the historicist view. One thing I didn't mention last night is a lot of dispensationalists historically have taken that approach at least as a secondary way of interpreting these little letters. I don't think I mentioned that. So these are not just those that are strictly historicist, uh, but some older commentators that are dispensational have found this an appealing approach as well. Uh, I don't see a need for it, and it doesn't really fit church history anyway, so I don't want to waste any energy trying to (laughs) find the parallels there. Uh, basically, what I said that I think the basic interpretation would be to just to take these little letters just as we would take any of the other letters. Now, these are a little bit different, and they have a different intent and a different purpose, but uh, I think uh, we can figure that out by reading each of the letters. So, in general, they were, first of all, initially written to particular situations, just like a letter to the Galatians or a letter to the Philippians. Certain things were going on in the church there, and uh, they're addressed in each of these letters. So there are some elements here that are tied to the historical background of these churches. Uh, We don't know all of the historical background of any of the letters, uh, including Paul or Peter, so we don't always know what's going on. But the better that we know the background and the situation... One of the characteristics of epistolary literature is they are what are called what is called occasional, and what we mean by that is they're written to meet a situation in a particular occasion or situation. 
occasional in that there are circumstances in those particular churches that whatever is addressed have very di- direct application. So some of the things that are mentioned in these little letters pertain to very specific things. Some of them we don't know, but some of them uh, we have a pretty good idea what uh, the situation was. So the better you can analyze the background and the situation of any letter, uh, Corinthians or otherwise in the New Testament, the better you are able to put together why the author is addressing those particular things. But secondly, because it's inspired, God chose these principles to be conveyed, these ideas, these corrections in some cases, because they would be applicable to the church at large throughout church history. So they're applicable to any church at any time. And just like the other letters, sometimes more so than others, and sometimes uh, very specifically. So we would take them in that way. Thirdly, we can read the letters individually and find individual application and find God being able to speak to us uh, personally in, in, uh, in the content of any letter as well. So that's, I think, the best way to interpret these and the best way to approach them and the best way to apply them. So that's something of the pertinence. <clears throat> I also wanted to... Uh, I can press the right button here. Give you a few of the properties. Before I do that, uh, I did mention why these particular seven? Why not others? In the first century, there were, I can't remember what the numbers are, between 500 and 1,000 different little townships. And many of those had churches that were established. Uh, we, we think that they were probably established out of Ephesus. Ephesus was somewhat the center. And we'll see a little bit more of that when we look at the letter that we have to the Ephesians. So, why these seven? In fact, these are probably, the, some of them are some of the most or least important in comparison some other, uh, to some other areas in the immediate area. For example, Laodicea was not even close to importance in comparison to Colossae, and Colossae is just right down the street, less than walking distance. Why not to Colossae instead of Laodicea? Well, I think because of the content, uh, you can see the characteristics of Laodicea. There were certain things there that I think uh, probably were not present in Colossae, and the Holy Spirit taking these in terms of representative church, churches that would show similar weaknesses and similar strengths through history uh, addressed to that particular body. So I think that's the basic answer in terms of why these seven. These were selected because they do give us kind of a, a broad spectrum of churches. We have good ones. Uh, none of them are perfect. We have some that uh, have some severe problems, just like we do with the uh, regular letters in the New Testament as well. Church at Corinth was a dysfunctional church. A lot of problems there. So Paul addresses all those problems. Uh, Church at Ephesus didn't seem to have many problems. Paul doesn't deal with uh, issues there. He predominantly deals theologically. And it doesn't seem like they had a theological problem 
either, but he uses that occasion to lay down some of the finest theology that we know of in ecclesiology. Lindsay? Um, I don't know that you could strictly say that in terms of kind of marrying a church. Is is that kind of what you're saying? But I would say, yeah, you, you should be able to look at Play Roma and say we are probably most like maybe the Ephesians or maybe, you know, one of the other ones. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that you'd find predominant characteristics in churches today that might be able to identify with particular ones. But on the other hand, there might be things in several of them that might be uh, applicable to any one church. Yeah, so I don't know that we can say that in terms of kind of limiting it. I think the whole spectrum. I mean, you might find a lot of parallels in one church with one church here in the book. But you might have a church that uh, shows maybe very little parallel, but maybe just bits and pieces from all of them. So the whole spectrum is what I would say. So that's... Probably the main reason why we have uh, these seven and seven, uh, seven of them just kind of goes along with some of the themes that we have in the book. Uh, John uh, selects things in sevens. He has seven bowl judgments, seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments. He has seven angels here, seven something else here. So he has seven churches. So it just kind of fits that pattern. And these are seven that if you have that idea that uh, seven is a number of completion. Well, we have kind of a representative or a complete number of churches that uh, are represented in in uh, the book of Revelation. Well, what are some of the outstanding properties? All seven. Uh, Tommy, do you have a question before? Right. If I can summarize your question for the video, I uh, should have done that with yours, too. Um, say it again in a brief. Since the canon is being completed with the book of Revelation, the completion of the establishment of his church. Hmm. I haven't given that much thought, but I don't necessarily see that. I, I think there are more... Like I said, representative of what you might find at any point in history. And, and maybe not just totally one church, like I said, uh, but you may find parallels in your church with a combination of them. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about that some more. That's a possibility. Well, one of the properties <clears throat> is at this stage in uh, all of these churches... All of them are really unpromising. In other words, there's enough problems in all of them, even the one at Ephesus, 
that uh, there's a lot of dangers that are kind of brought to the surface here, which, which tells us that in general, there's going to be a spiritual battle throughout church history, and we need to be on guard. Uh, if these churches very close to the apostolic period, and people even... This, this is the second generation, by the way. This is second generation Christianity. So there's a big application here. Uh, we need to pass on the faith to the next generation. These are the children of those that had contact with the, uh, the apostles. And we see, for example, Ephesus is not the Ephesus of uh, shortly after Paul's day. Uh, there seems to be a decline in this so-called, what I call, second generation group of Ephesians. So all of them show signs that uh, point to a possibility of maybe a bleak future or problems if not dealt with. And that's a major theme as well. So uh, one of the things about them is they show that uh, the possibility of decline very rapid. Uh, the application to draw from us is we need to always beware. You know, we, we are never at a point where we're, quote, safe in the faith. We need to always be moving forward. Uh, I like to use the analogy that anything that is growing, anything that is alive is either growing or dying. That's true physically, and I think it's also true spiritually. You're either growing spiritually or you're dying spiritually. Uh, you, don't, you don't stay the same. That's true of plants. That's true of animals. That's true of us, uh, particularly spiritually. So I think that's a property that we can draw to the surface here uh, and see in all of these churches. Some of them seem to be in decline. In fact, a lot of them do. Uh, another characteristic is um, each each shows a a a, uh, a pattern. They're they're all structured with a pattern. I'll give that pattern to you in a moment. Uh, and only omitting that pattern only on a, a few occasions. Uh, we'll we'll see that. They'll also each begin the same. They all begin almost identically as part of the pattern. And I'll get into that when we get into the pattern there. Uh, so they all began, for example, with, I know your works or I know your deeds. The omniscient Christ knows everything about that church. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about this church. He knows everything about all of the churches. So they have a lot of these properties in common. Uh, the literary aspect in terms of the pattern, the structure of them. Uh, another property, some think that they're almost more similar to oracles than actually letters. And I, I could see a little bit of that, but I think they are generally better classified as letters. Let's take a look at the pattern. Well, one other property here. They all seem to, probably the major characteristic, major property they have in common, they seem to be assessments of where the church is right now. Kind of like a military inspection. The analogy might be uh, a commander has the troops, or the sailors in the case of the photograph there. 
They're standing in review and they are under inspection. And he will have somebody recording his observations. Uh, that the analogy there is in verse one, for example, which we have consistently in all of the letters to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Right. Now, these letters are not to the angels. In other words, they don't pertain to the angels, but yet the command is to the angel to write. It's almost like, OK, make a record of this. You're the witness. These angels, I'm already giving you away some of what I will interpret in terms of the angels. These angels are kind of the recorders. In other words, they are the ones to make observation here. They're the ones to make note of the assessment. And in the assessment, we have... uh, Tell me I'm going to have the problem again. Uh, We have corrective measures in every one of them. So it's like an inspection report, no soldiers perfect, and a strict commander will find something, <laughs> no matter how, uh, right, Tommy? <laughs> Ex-Marine. Uh, no matter how perfect you think uh, you addressed, uh, the commander will find something and point it out, and it'll be listed on there. And you are to improve it by next time. So each of these are corrective measures. And the call is to repent. And there's going to be another inspection that comes down the road. So I kind of see something like that. the, The analogy of an inspection report. And the angel is the observer. And he's the recorder. He's the one that uh, is going to bring the checklist back. And they'll review the checklist and see if the corrective measures were taken. So that's something of what I see as a, a characteristic of all of them. So we have the pertinence. We have the properties. Let's look at the pattern. It's very clear cut. Uh, they're easy to separate. And I probably have more here than what you actually need. The first two are something of an introduction to each of the letters. We have a commission that's almost identical in every letter. The only thing that's different is the church that's involved there. So, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, and on and on and on. So you have kind of a commissioning of the angel, part of the introduction. Then you have something about the correspondent. I'm using C's as my alliteration here, as you can see, maybe stretching it a little bit. Uh, The next part in, in Ephesians, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. And in the correspondent, the little details of his description of himself go back to chapter 1, to what we already looked at. Uh, So at Ephesus, uh, and usually, the description has some pertinence to the particular letter that is being addressed. So we have a description of the correspondent. And then we have a complaint. And and by the way, every letter has that element, the correspondent. Uh, 
Then we have a complaint, or a compliment, rather. Sorry about that. Now, this one you find consistently with only two exceptions. There's only two that break from the pattern. Sardis and Laodicea. There's no, com- there's no compliment. In other words, compliment or commendation. We could use that word as well. Complimentary words. At, Ephesian, at, the, at, at Ephesus, I know your deeds and your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, etc., etc., etc. Very positive things at the church of, at Ephesus. With the exceptions at Sardis, no compliments. No compliments at Laodicea. And then you have the complaint. Okay, here's the inspection. This is what's wrong. And in this, there's only one exception. This is Smyrna. But you find a complaint in all of the rest. The complaint, obviously, is followed by a correction like you would find in a, an inspection report. This is what you need to do to correct the situation. Every one of them, even those that don't have a complaint, have a correction. And some exhortation, some uh, command in some cases... And part of the correction is sometimes even a threat. And sometimes uh, either an exhortation or a threat. So, the first two elements are somewhat of an introduction. And then kind of the body of the letter are three, four, and five. And then you have uh, probably a beginning of a conclusion with the call That's verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Kind of a call to attention. Okay, Pay attention to this inspection report. And, and notice, uh, one thing you want to notice, in every one of them, what the Spirit says to whom? Not singular, not the church at Ephesus, but to the churches. Remember what we said yesterday. This whole book is written to all of the churches. All of these letters is written to all of the churches. So all of them are to take heed. All of them are to pay attention. Now, the particular things that are applicable to Ephesus are contained in this letter, but there might be some elements that are also applicable in any church in the first century as well as at any time. So, it's it's a call to attention to the churches, plural. All of them. So, these are written to all the churches. Because it's inspired. It's inspiration. And I think the whole book of Revelation was sent to each of the seven, seven churches. So, they had access. They could read other people's mail. And that's what we do. We read other people's mail when we read the New Testament. Because we're in view as well. So we have a call, and then they all close with a challenge. And contained within the challenge is also usually a promise. 
So that's the sevenfold pattern. A commission, a, the words of description of a correspondent, a few words of compliment, sometimes more so in some churches than others. Uh, sometimes it's missing. A complaint. They all have a correction. They all have a call to, to pay attention. And then finally, they have all, all have a challenge. Uh, let's see, probably in verse 7. Let's see. Sometimes it's not in this order, by the way. Probably verse 5. Remember, therefore. Verse 5. Well, that's part of the correction. Let's see. Let's see, what's verse 7 there? Probably the last phrase there. To, to him, yes, who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's the promise. It's uh, a challenge or a promise. Yeah, that would be it. So that's the pattern that you can observe. The next thing in our introduction to the seven churches... Let me give you a panorama, just to have peas here. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, let me give you kind of an overview of what we have in terms of content. Give you a panorama of the content, some of the main issues. Uh, I will summarize these main issues as we go through. Uh, Ephesus, they, the main issue there, they lost their first love. Smyrna, we'll go over this, so don't even write them down. We'll go over each of these. Uh, Smyrna, it's a persecuted church. That's the essence of what's going on there. Pergamum, there's doctrinal compromise. Thyatira, there's apostasy that's permitted. At Sardis, there's spiritual deadness. Philadelphia is a faithful church. Laodicea is a complacent or lukewarm church. Those are the main issues. Now, another kind of um, consistent issue that is raised uh, in almost every one of the churches is doctrinal purity. An emphasis on doctrinal purity. At Ephesus, they have false apostles that they have to deal with. At Smyrna, they have some uh, Jews, uh, uh, false Jews is what they're called in verse 9. Pergamum, there's all kinds of problems there. They have the teaching of Balaam. They have uh, teaching of the Nicolaitans, whoever they are. Thyatira, they have uh, a Jezebel, a false prophetess who leads people astray and she teaches deep things of Satan. Sardis, uh, remember the things that you have heard. In other words, a reminder of doctrinal content. Philadelphia, keep his word. They don't have it compromised, but they're still encouraged to keep the word. So doctrinal purity is also an emphasis at the church at Philadelphia. Uh, keep the word of perseverance, verse 10 in chapter 3. Laodicea, they were struggling with deception. 
So doctrinal purity is a, a major theme of all of them. All of them have very practical elements to them. This is another, another issue here. All of them have practical elements to them. Uh, the Ephesians, they, they seem to have a lot of ministry going on. But uh, the practical aspect is be careful not to sometimes overshadow ministry and neglect that personal relationship. They lost their first love. There are a lot of positives, but they were cooling down in terms of their relationship. Smyrna uh, faced tribulation. Those are all kinds of practical things that they had to deal with. Primarily the practical issue of suffering. Pergamum, they're dwelling in a place of Satan, so there are some dangers there, practical dangers. They were also involved in eating food sacrificed to idols. That was a practical issue that needed to be dealt with in that church. Uh, immoral acts, also a practical issue that needed correcting in verse 14. Thyatira. They were involved in or had the danger of evil deeds in verse 22. Uh, they needed to grow in uh, practical application, verse 19. Sardis, strengthen the things that remain. Probably looking at practical issues that uh, were already there, but maybe weakening, needing strengthening. Uh, Philadelphia, they'll have this tremendous opportunity of all kinds of practical application. In other words, real ministry. Open door. Philadelphia. Laodicea, uh, they have primarily a reproof. They need to develop some self-discipline. That's a practical area. Uh, the whole issue of fe uh, fellowship in that church. Fellowship with the Lord is a, an issue of practicality. All of the church, another issue, all of the churches faced evil danger. And I kind of alluded to, to that with the first major issue. Uh, they faced, in some cases, internal threats, in some cases, external threats. At Ephesus, they were dealing with evil men that they needed to resist. There was also the threat of the Nicolaitans. They hate them, but uh, the threat was present in verse 6. Smyrna, there are false Jews, a synagogue of Satan, that's an evil danger. Pergamum, they're right at Satan's throne. They're dwelling in the same place that Satan dwells, plus the dangers of idols and immorality. Thyatira, Thyatira the danger of the Jezebel in their midst, also immorality, also Idols. Also the deep things of Satan. Sardis. Soiled garments. They needed to change their diapers. That's all I have to say about that one. Just think of that image. Philadelphia. Synagogue of Satan and false Jews. Laodicea. Deception. So there's all these evil dangers that are lurking. An application to draw. We, we face danger. We're in a spiritual warfare. We can isolate ourselves. We can try to separate ourselves. But we can't totally escape. Amy, do you have a quick... 
Yes, it's kind of a mild one. Uh, we'll have to. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, Philadelphia is very positive. I can't remember why I didn't. But there must be something in there that. Uh, verse nine, huh? Okay. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not. There it is. That's it. Or somehow related. It's not totally clear whether they're members. At least the threat of influence of them. Uh it's pretty mild because it's 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 probably not the church itself. It, it may be just an isolated one or two, or maybe even outside. But they, they're having influence on maybe some of the members. It's not clear to me as to what's going on there. Okay, um, another kind of panoramic issue related to all of the church. They all have kind of a forward-looking or future aspect that are brought out, primarily in the challenge or in the promise. And most of what's anticipated is ultimately either in the kingdom or even beyond that. Promises that pertain to the future. Uh, this is one of the main passages. That chapters 2 and 3 are probably one of the main passages in all of Scripture that give us a rationale why practical living today has long-range consequences. Uh, a lot of Christians uh, don't think that their lifestyle matters much. Uh, and I think because of that, they, they live a complacent Christian life. How we live moment by moment is going to have eternal and ongoing ramifications, particularly in the kingdom. And these two chapters are some of the main passages in all of Scripture that tell us that. The concept of rewards, the concept of loss of rewards is ever-present in all of these. So we have that future aspect and usually, allusions to his return are present in every one of these as a motivator. In other words, I'm returning. Uh, in the commander's coming back. He's going to go down that checklist, see if uh, the corrective measures were taken. So that's a motive for repentance. And the word repentance is used a lot. And then along with that, if you repent, then the following will Will, will come about in the future. Uh, at Ephesus, repent and do the first works or I will come and remove your lampstand. Eventually, sadly, there's no church there today. So the lampstand was removed. There's no city there. Uh, the city died. <clears throat> we'll talk about that when we get there. Smyrna, be faithful in view of future rewards. In other words, continue their suffering. There's no complaint, but keep on going. Encouragement, even in the midst of everything going positive, there's no negative this point out. Here's, here's a guy that 
he made the inspection with no criticism. Pretty rare, huh? Uh, Be faithful in view of the future crowns. Uh, Pergamum, repent, or I will come quickly and will make war. He's going to do battle with that church. Thyatira, uh, he wants them to hold fast until he comes. Verse 25, Sardis, hold fast and repent, or I will come like a thief at an unknown hour. Philadelphia, he's coming quickly, so hold fast. Do not lose your crown. Laodicea, he's knocking, trying to get in. I will come in with you, and he's waiting for repentance. Uh, And by the way, that's one of the main purposes of Bible prophecy in general, is to motivate and to encourage us to live the way that uh, the Bible instructs. Another theme in terms of a panorama, uh, the rewards, I've already mentioned that, rewards of overcomers, the concept of the overcomer. We'll look at that more carefully when we get to the word in its context. The Ephesians are promised that they will eat the tree of life if they overcome in the paradise of God. Smyrna is given a crown, will be given a crown of life. Pergamum, given hidden manna and a white stone and a new name. Thyatira, given authority over the nations. And they will rule with Christ in a special way with a rod of iron. And they will be given the morning star. Lots of promises to, to them. Uh, the most problematic of all of them might be Thyatira. And it's given the most extensive motivation, I guess you could say. Sardis, they will walk in white. They'll be clothed in white. They will be in the book of life. Their name will be confessed before the Father and angels. So, rewards for overcomers. Church of Philadelphia, a crown. They'll be made a pillar in the temple of God. That's future. They'll have access They'll be associated with the name of God in his city. They'll be given a new name. Uh, Laodicea, they'll sit on his throne if they change the situation. If they overcome. Second Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's written to the Christian. It's kind of a summation of what we have in these seven letters. They will all be evaluated. They will all stand before the commander. And you and I will as well. We'll stand before the Bema, seat of Christ. And rewarded accordingly. So that's a summary of, or an introduction I should have done this before. Uh, this is just the slide that has the summary of each of them. Ephesus lost its first love. Smyrna, the suffering church. Pergamum, compromising church. Thyatira, apostate church. Sardis, dead church. 
Philadelphia Faithful Church, Laodicea, a lukewarm church. So let's take a look at the, the first one here. Hmm, I skipped over these slides, didn't I? There's your panorama. Okay, Church at Ephesus. Let me give you a little bit of the background to kind of go along with the C's. I just call it the circumstances at Ephesus to fit that pattern. So this is number eight. This is just kind of introductory to Ephesus. Uh, what was the situation there? Uh, by the way, I'll refer back to this column here. This is the. This gives you a perspective on the uh, the temple at Artemis uh, or of Artemis at Ephesus. I'll give you some dimensions on that, but that's a reconstruction of it to give you a perspective. Here's this kind of the size of people. Uh, that temple is an amazing thing. It, you've probably seen photographs of the Parthenon in Athens four times the size of the Parthenon. We'll look at that <clears throat> just using a back, background slide there. I'm not sure what you're referring to. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, I believe that he was at Ephesus in the later days of his life before he was exiled. Yes, I would hold to that. Right. Uh, on a map, uh, kind of a broader map, here's the Aegean Sea. This would be Asia Minor. This today, present-day Turkey. Uh, first missionary journey of Paul. Here's Caesarea in Palestine there. This area are where all the seven churches are, and Ephesus is right there. Uh, that little spot there is probably Patmos on that map. Another map of Ephesus, kind of blowing it up a little bit, with Patmos on the bottom there, about, uh, about 60 miles as the crow flies, 70 as you kind of meander around islands and stuff like that. Just a different map. Kind of gives you it gives you the, the feel for the topography of the land there. So in the first century, that those little three dots there, you can see it's a little bit inland. That that's significant. In the first century, it was actually exposed to this Aegean Sea, and the city died when uh, the river it was significant up to Ephesus was silted in. And when the city died, the lampstand was removed. The church died as well. But the topography, these are not real high mountains, but hills. And in these valleys, we find uh, these seven churches. Laodicea would be over here. Uh, Pergamum would be up here. Bergama, present-day Bergama. Uh, gives you a feel for the topography. This is something of what Ephesus would have looked like before the river got silted in. It would have been a, a city that was very vibrant. In fact, of all of the cities of the Roman world, the, the, 
the, the city of Ephesus was the fourth most important and fourth largest of the Roman world. Do you know what the other three would be? Probably one of them is easy to guess. No, Athens was not. No. Hmm? No, not Athens. Rome. <laughs> That's the easy one. <laughs> Hoping somebody would come. <laughs> yeah, Rome would be uh, one of them. Uh, Alexandria would be another one in Egypt. And the, the third would be Antioch of Syria. A little bit surprising, but Antioch of Syria was the, probably one of the most important cities of the ancient Roman Empire. And then Ephesus. So the city where Paul and Barnabas went were commissioned on their first missionary journey. It was a prominent city. So if you can use your imagination, this is something of what Ephesus might have looked like when it was prominent. It was on the coast there and it was a, a, a major harbor. That's what made it uh, not only important. It was on a major trade route. So ships from all over the world would land in Ephesus. Uh, the city actually is inland, and this is some of the remains there. In fact, I think I got an arrow there that's supposed to come up. That's that tower, or that, not tower, that column. You see it? Should have put the arrow closer to it right there. So the city, and actually the, uh, the archaeological site... You can see it covered quite a bit of ground in that the city extended uh, beyond this and all the way uh, around this hill here. And I'll show you some photographs of the archaeology there. Uh, the distance from here to here is about three miles, and probably all of that was occupied by the city of Ephesus. And there's no sign of the river because it's silted in. There's the location on a different map there. And this map kind of shows how far away. I, I don't remember the exact distance. I think like 10 miles to the ocean, somewhere in there. Kind of zeroing in. Uh, I, le I love Google Earth. <laughs> you can zero in on these sites. In fact, before I took a trip over there, that's how I kind of put together uh, the location of them. I'd find them on Google Earth in order to be able to find them on the ground because I didn't want to spend any time over there looking for the sites. And you can just zero in on them. Uh, this, uh, this is a prominent theater that we'll look at. These are streets that I'll point out as well. Uh, the... Uh, Temple of Artemis is over here. This, the distance there is about three miles. This was that hill that I showed in that photograph. And the city would have gone all around this hill and would have occupied this very fertile valley. Uh, the river, uh, you can see the river over here, and it runs around here. It kind of runs around the city right through here. Uh, in the first century, this, would have, this was a major harbor, and ships, large ships, would come up into the river and would end up at Ephesus. Well, let's zero in a little closer. In Google Earth, there's the uh, uh, Temple of Artemis. Wait a minute, that's not it. I think it's over here. 
this is a major theater. Probably the, the biggest theater in the ancient world that I know of is at Ephesus. I'll show you some photographs. There's a small theater here. There are two of them. Now, this is important because this is probably the location in Acts chapter 19 when it refers, when they took hold of Paul and they were going to probably kill him. Is probably the intent of the mob there. And it specifically says that uh, they did it, they gathered together and assembled. In fact, the word ecclesia is used. They assembled there as a, as a rioting mob, mob uh, probably intent on tearing Paul from limb to limb. So that kind of gives you a perspective. So there's the theater. There's the Temple of Artemis. Uh, just a map of the theater, the first century location. Uh, this was actually found at Ephesus in some of the archaeology. By the way, one of the most uh, excavated sites in all of the known world is at Ephesus, and particularly Turkey. So there's a lot to see there. Uh, this, this is first century streets that you can walk. In fact, I think I took that photograph. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's neat. It's, it's really, it's impressive. And all along, all of these streets would have been temples and government buildings. And uh, this is kind of the downtown first century. Uh, same street further down. It was not only a, uh, an important commercial area, but it was uh, an intellectual center as well. This is a... a First century remains of the uh, Library of Celsus. A little bit closer. Perspective of size. There's people. Yeah, Paul would have walked these streets probably every day. The background there. This would be the valley. Uh, this would have. This is the silted-in harbor. That street that I just showed you, the, the library is right here, and we I took a shot right here, that first one, then I took a closer one over here, and we'll take a look at this theater. Uh, there, very any city of any prominence at all in the ancient world will have a theater like that. There's the little one. All kinds of things, uh, political speeches, plays, orations, athletic events, uh, probably athletic events in this one, maybe uh, more orations and smaller things. The acoustics are amazing. Well, they didn't have speakers, stuff that you hang on your ear. Uh, the Agora. This is the shopping area. This would have been Walmart right here. They would have built a Walmart down there. Library of Celsus, Intellectual Center. It was a cultural center, art, uh, famous for its art. Wealthy city. There's a small theater right there. 
right off that main street on the side there, there's some of the art that is dated back to the first century. Bathhouse. Uh, they would have run hot water underneath those little columns or whatever you call them would uh, support a floor that would allow the heat, kind of like a sauna. Mm-hmm. No, no, they it would support a floor. And you'd walk on it and probably benches there. You'd sit and have a spa. There's the big theater. It's quite impressive. In fact, while I was there, uh, we had, you know, people would go down there and you'd go as far as they would let you. I think there was, a, when I was there, there was a, I think there was a fence like here. They wouldn't let you go too much higher. But you could go to the extent of that fence and you could just clearly hear just normal speech. I mean, you didn't have to yell or anything. They estimate it held 25,000 people. And there's the dimensions 475 by about 98. And in the first century, it would have gone uh, up beyond this level here and probably extended up to probably a point over here. And that's a shot from about the spot that they permit, you, at least when I was there, to permit you to go. And somebody standing uh, pretty much anywhere in the central area here, speaking in a normal voice, you could understand and hear pretty clearly. Uh, this is what's called the Appian Way. That's referred to in Scripture. This was the way to the harbor. The harbor, this this is the that brown area. That would have been the harbor where... Large ships would have come in, and they would have gone out and around this little nub there uh, out to sea in the first century. There's nothing new under the sun. (laughs) You can figure out what that is. Ephesus Street and the Civic Agora, Agora Marketplace. Again, in the background is that library, what remains of it. It would have extended back over here. This is just the front facade of it. And here's the Temple of Artemis. Uh, The extent of it, uh, there's evidence of footings over here and all the way over here. And it would extend all the way past the, the slide there. And this is very common, and we read about this in Acts chapter 19. This is a major economic artifact, if you will, or the goddess manufactured in Ephesus, sold all over the world. And you can find, well, you can't, you and I can't, but uh, archaeologists have found these all over. Uh, They probably originate from Ephesus, a lot of them. Now, there were other temples elsewhere to Artemis as well, but the main one was at Ephesus, considered one of the seven wonders of the world. No, the temple. But this is just a, in a museum there. Fertility. These are breasts. Fertility goddess. <laughs> I don't know what kind of bra you wear, but... <laughs> 
Okay, there's the, the column, 60 foot tall, 127 of them, and like I said, four times the uh, size of the Parthenon. Gives you a little feel. So when you read uh, even Ephesians, maybe these images, in fact, the advantages of visiting these things, when I see a name in Scripture, you know, some of these pictures flash through my mind and, and I have a visual picture. Uh, when I read Acts 19, I see this 25,000 seat, what looks like an arena, but actually they call it a theater. Uh, so I'm reading along there and, you know, these images flash in my mind. So hopefully I've given you a little feel for it. Hadrian's Temple, uh, worship of the emperors were was prominent at Ephesus. Here's one of the emperors, Hadrian. This dates to the second century. Okay. Okay, let's look at verse 1, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Well, we should have no problem with the angel, right? It's interpreted for us. Pretty clear. Jesus tells us the angel or the stars, the stars are the seven angels. End of story, closed case. Well, if you read the commentaries, you find out, well, who are the angels? <laughs> Why angels? Why is this addressed to the angels? Who are they? What do they represent? You know, what's what's going on with the angels? In some of the uh, popular commentaries, it's pretty common to uh, find the interpretation to refer to pastors. In other words, to the pa it's really to the pastors. It's and the basis for that is angelos, means messenger. So they're the messengers, they're the pastors. Um, a lot of reasons why that's not the interpretation. Uh, one being, in my memory, uh, I don't think I've ever met an angelic pastor that I know of. <laughs> Maybe Clay. I don't know. <laughs> no? Okay. All right. So that settles it. <laughs> uh, no, really? Uh, <clears throat> all kidding aside. Uh, the word is never used. Uh, the word angelos is never used in reference to church leaders. Now, stars are used... In terms of uh, some personages, in fact, I gave you an example in chapter 9, but not uh, angelos. And in the book of Revelation, uh, we have angels all over the place. And it would be very, very unusual for John to depart from uh, his normal usage. And there's really nothing in the text, well, the only thing in the text... And the, the, the driver is this is what's being addressed. The, the angelos of the churches are being addressed here. So that's the only little bit of exegetical basis that you would have to, to come to that conclusion. Do you have a question? Uh, no, this is an address to the angel. It's to the angel of the church in Ephesus right. Sounds like it. And maybe John copied his notes off of him. 
Uh, I think what it is more, uh, and that's why I titled it uh, a commissioning. In other words, in a military sense, we we have an end of this angel that is commissioned as a witness to be brought. I'll get to that. Okay, we'll get to that. So I don't think I think this is probably the least likely. The whole book is against it because uh, I said you can develop a whole angelology here, and I don't see any basis to depart from from John's usage of the word angelos. Another suggestion that's made, it's uh, a prophet, uh, prophets. And that's even further removed from pastors. I mean, there's less basis for it. Why, why a pastor? Uh, it is a little bit unusual that you would have this kind of construction because you don't see this anywhere else in the New Testament in terms of uh, any letter introduced in this way. So this is why it's problematic is just trying to solve, you know, figure out why, why is John doing this. Uh, I think there's some easy solutions to that, though. Uh, messengers. This is kind of the literal meaning of the word, a human messenger to the churches. And some suggest maybe the one that was the deliberate, since he's commanded to write, so that's a suggestion. The one that would bear the letter to the churches, the one that John would have said, okay, take this to Ephesus. Now, most of them see the letters addressed individually, but I think the whole book, as we've already been seeing. So John would have sent the whole book to all of the churches. Uh, I don't think that's it. There's little support for that as well. Uh, same support I've just mentioned. Uh, it departs from John's usage. Uh, we will see as we work through the book, we've already seen in verse 1, the prominence of angels and how they are utilized in the communication. So I think this is another example like verse 1. They're involved in some way in the communicating of the message here. Some see a personification of the church, kind of the spirit of the church personified in the angel. That's a kind of a non-literal usage of uh, the word. And again, based on literal interpretation, we probably reject that one. Uh, a good, this is a possibility. Uh, I wouldn't reject this one outright. There does seem to be the concept of guardian angels in even in the New Testament. And there seems to be guardian angels on an individual basis. I, I have no problem with possibly there being guardian angels of churches. That there might be angels that are overseeing what goes on in churches and protecting us. Uh, there is a spiritual unseen battle that does go on. And we see examples in the Old Testament where angels are doing battle and they're some of the spillover and some of the reasons for the battle are things on earth. So this, this is not a bad suggestion. That's a possibility. Uh, probably the best that I think uh, fits the context is these kind of these witnesses to what's going on. And more than witnesses in that uh, in some way they are involved in the communication that goes on. Just like we saw in verse 1. Uh, 
So these angels are are related to the outworking of what God is doing. And and that is consistent in the book of Revelation. God sends the angels that they're they're used to effect physical things sometimes. In other words, they are holding back the four winds in chapter seven. In other cases, they are the agents that God uses to bring judgment. In some cases, they seem to be observers and they are watching what's going on. And this might be maybe the emphasis here. Angelic observers. So personally, this is what I would prefer. And they have a variety of functions in the book of Revelation. And you can see just if you just start studying each individual incident where angels are involved, you're going to see a variety of ministries, a variety of functions, and this is one of them. They seem to be witnesses. Okay? By the way, in fact, probably gave it away here. What is one of the main purposes of the universal church? Not the local church. What is one of them? Uh, personally, in ecclesiology, I see a set of purposes for the universal church and an additional set of purposes within the broader purpose. But I see more specific purposes of the local church that are laid out in Scripture. So my question is, is what do you see as some of the major purposes of the church? The universal church. Tommy? Witnesses to God's word. God's word. I'm not sure exactly how angels are witnesses to the rest of the world. Oh, the church. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry. First Peter. Okay, First Peter two. Right. Yeah. To to declare the ex. That's what you're saying. Declare the excellencies of God. That's. First Peter two, that would be a major purpose. Say that again. It's his best plan for the ages. Okay, I hesitate to say best because that implies that he has a lesser. <laughs> he goofed up with Israel, <laughs> but yeah. In other words, his ult, maybe his ultimate plan. Okay, good. Okay, Lindsay, did you? Yeah, we overlook this, but turn to Ephesians, Ephesians 3. Uh, In fact, most churches don't even have a clue concerning this aspect of it. And basically, Paul is explaining the essence of what the church is all about. It was a mystery before... Pentecost. And and by the way, if you study through the book of Acts, the church still didn't understand what the church was all about or the believers didn't understand what the church was all about. Uh, I don't think Paul or Peter on the day of Pentecost had a full understanding because later on in chapter 10, God has to give him a series of visions of the uh, unclean animals. Remember that to understand what the church is all about. Uh, the church is not just this Jewish outgrowth. 
uh, Ephesians, this mystery is that God has brought together on an equal basis Jew and Gentile. And then in this context where he kind of defines what the church is all about, notice what he says in verse 9 through 11. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. In other words, the outworking or the, like he says, administration or dispensation of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things, So, there are some aspects of the plan of God that have not been known before the church age. And you might expect in verse 10 that it would say, and now to make it known to mankind, or make it known to the world. But what does it say? In order that the manifold wisdom of God may now be made known through the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Those are angelic creatures, angelic beings. What God is doing amongst us in the church, angels are observing and taking note. And they're learning. They're receiving a revelation of some aspects of God that they don't know about. And they can probably go in His presence. Satan can, so, so the angels can. They're learning the full extent of grace. They're learning reconciliation. They're learning all these aspects. Uh, angels don't understand and angels don't know. of. They don't, ha- they don't have a concept of grace. Uh, they don't have a second chance. And to your point yesterday about God loving, it's never declared that He loves them. That's a good point. That's a good point. Right? Yeah, His love uh, and the extent of that love. Uh, The church, God is making known things to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This is in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, angels are intensely interested in what's going on here. And I think that's what we have here in the book of Revelation. Is Here's an angelic witness. You know, just taking note of what's going on here, representative of, of the angels. <clears throat> There's a lot of little, little passages that we kind of just skip, read over them and don't even think anything about it. For example, 1 Corinthians uh, 11, where it talks about the head covering of women and showing a symbol of authority and all of that. And then kind of out of the blue, Paul says, because of the angels. What? <laughs> Because of the angels, what, what, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, in that context, it almost seems like, what's he throwing that in there for? But with, first, or with Ephesians 3, uh, 9, 10, 11 there, the angels are observing. They're, they're looking, you know, what's going on in the church? Uh, so that's how I kind of see these angelic creatures in uh, in this context. So it's to the angel of the church at Ephesus right. Uh, let's continue. Does that make sense, by the way, in terms of interpreting? Right. 
they were witnesses there as well. Witnesses of the law is what he's saying. Ministering spirits, Hebrews one. To allow seven to be in some administrative role. I don't see them as uh, involved in these churches in terms of direct contact per, per se. That's why I kind of see them as observers, uh, and they're the ones that. You know, the inspection report is going out to. Now, obviously, John's the one that writes and John's the one that sends these off. But it does not eliminate the angels involved as well. They're taking their own notes and making their own observations. Well, there's a balance. Uh, angels are important, and they're very important in the book of Revelation. But they're not to be worshipped. And even in the book of Revelation, John bows down before an angel, and he's rebuked. In fact, two times, I think, if I remember right, in the book of Revelation. Yeah, we are not to worship angels. So there is a balance. Uh, we can overemphasize uh, the passages that prohibits that. And then to the neglect of their importance. And look at Revelation right off the bat. These letters, we have angels involved here. We're going to see angels all over the place. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. Now we have the correspondent in verse 1. The one who holds the seven stars. In other words, the one that holds the seven stars. What are the stars? Pastors, right? <laughs> no, we just went over that. <laughs> the seven angels, exactly. The one who holds the seven angels. In other words, the one that is in sovereign control of all of the angels. He's sovereign over all. He holds them. In his right hand, the hand of power and authority. The one who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands. He's in the midst. Remember we saw that's from the image there. When John turned, he saw one in the midst of the... Seven lampstands. Uh, the seven golden lampstands. So this is the one. This is the same one that John saw in chapter 1. This is the resurrected Christ who is coming as judge and king. That one is the one that is speaking here. This is the one that is giving these complimentary words. He's observing them. He's the one that is giving the complaints. He's the one that's making the promises. He is sovereignly overseeing. He is omnisciently seeing everything that's going on amongst the churches. The complaint or compliment rather. Why do I get that mixed up? Two and three. Uh, I know, starting like every other church, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance uh, that you cannot endure evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. Uh, lots of positives there. In fact, uh, mostly positives in terms of the description that we have. 
probably more positives than uh, any of the other churches. I think there's one that has one more positive than Ephesus. First of all, uh, the general kind of category or the general observation that Christ makes, I know your deeds overall. In other words, that's kind of uh, the Greek word ergai, which is works, basically. The, the translated works elsewhere. Deeds in New Market Standard. It, in this context, and in a lot of contexts, it has the idea of, of your production, of your, your ministry. And in some cases, he knows their production, and not all of it is eternal. In other words, uh, he knows all about what goes on in Sunday school. He knows all about what goes on in terms of uh, ministry outside of Sunday morning. He he knows all of that. Uh, So it's kind of the broad category of all of the things that this, this church and any church would do. Now, we'll see a distinction in some of the churches... Their works are not good. In other words, they're probably either in the flesh or sometimes you can have three categories of of deeds. Those that have eternal value and will receive reward. Those that are outwardly seeming to be spiritual but done in the flesh that have no eternal reward or no eternal effect. And you can have overtly evil deeds and some of these churches have that. Uh, I think these are positive because of what follows. So I know your deeds and your toil, which means that uh, uh, their ministry is not an easy ministry. It, it, it takes labor. This is the word that is used in context of hard work. Uh, so things are not necessarily easy for the Ephesians. That's a positive and sometimes by, there's lots of applications here. Uh, God sometimes calls us to do difficult things, things that we don't want to do. In fact, the more inconvenienced we are, oftentimes the more uh, eternal value is the thing that God calls us to do. Uh, So we oftentimes are called uh, to put ourselves out. Uh, Drew had to deal with, what was that, a counseling thing yesterday? or Well, I don't need to know, but... Yeah, in the middle of you know his teaching here, you know you don't want to do that. You want to sit here and uh, be a part of what's going on here. But he goes out and tries to minister to somebody uh, in that way. Those kinds of things. Sometimes you have to put yourself out. Sometimes uh, the things that you want to do, you have to set aside. Uh, This was characteristic of this church, and uh, by way of application, should be something we should work on and develop as. As we grow as well. And they continue. Hupomone, the uh, word translated perseverance. So this is not just uh, a six week program, this is an ongoing thing that they're committed to. That you cannot uh, endure evil men. So that they are taking a stand. Uh, one of the weaknesses of the. Uh, church today is churches don't discipline anymore in general. Uh, the church overall uh, does not discipline. And this is a disciplining church. They're, they're dealing with issues in the church. You cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. So they, they're working on doctrinal purity and uh, uh, genuineness. 
And apparently there were some that were claiming to be very spiritual or apostles or whatever, leaders. And they're putting them to the test. Are you really, are you really what you're claiming? Uh, and they are not in this case. And you found them to be false. So they, they took the effort and the time to investigate, to evaluate, to analyze, to observe, to do all that they needed to make a proper conclusion. They dealt with it. And he repeats it. And you have perseverance. So this is a major characteristic. Uh, the enduring quality of, of a walk. A lot of believers will begin well and go out like gangbusters, but give them six months or give them two years and they, uh, they don't continue. The Ephesian church continued uh, perseverance. And ha- to emphasize it, another word, and have endured. In other words, they ha- it, it's not the, just the perseverance, but they have endured obstacles. Things that were designed by the enemy to keep them from enduring or from persevering. They have endured those things. For my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Uh, weariness is a major obstacle to moving forward. But, verse 4, I have this against you. This is the what? We have the compliment. Just a few shots. Lost their love for the Lord and replaced it with cold orthodoxy. Kind of a summary of what I have here of the church. I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Very short, very brief, just verse 4. But uh, a major problem. We talk about different views as to what the lost love is. Most of them are possibilities. It could be a departure from their love of the Word. I think. Probably more, I think it's more general in terms of just God himself. Uh, Which, if you neglect God, you will generally follow through with the other things that you will neglect as well. So, I I like to look at it in the broader sense to encompass uh, the first priority, basically. Our number one priority is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. That's our number one priority. This church has kind of wandered from that. Had a lot of things good. Uh, he's, they're well complimented. They are, they're enduring and, and they are apparently accomplishing an eternal work. Uh, but they're more focused, it appears, on the ministry than they are on the Lord that is behind the ministry. At least that's the criticism. So there's no perfect church. Uh, this is a, a church that has declined some from uh, the early earlier generation. Uh, the early generation probably didn't have this failing. They may have had even all of the others that are mentioned in verses 2 and 3. But by the end of the century, they finally grew weary in terms of their relationship. Maybe not their activity, but at least their relationship. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. This is, this is a departure. This is a fallenness. 
We can be orthodox. We can be doctrinal. We can be clear in presenting the gospel. But God desires more than just clarity and accuracy and commitment to His Word. He desires that relationship that is the motivator behind all of those good things. It's a state of fallenness. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. In other words, change directions. Change your mind, your mindset. Uh, Reverse the course. And do the deeds you did at first. Read Ephesians by Paul. They'll have several things they did at first. Or else... We have something of a threat. Or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. That's the correction. Five and six. So we have a threat contained in the correction. And then verse six. Yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he kind of adds to the compliment in verse 6, actually. So they are to remember, repent, repeat. Got R's here. Or removal. (laughs) Kind of a summary. Remember, repent, repeat, or removal. And then we have a call in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We emphasize the plurality of that. And basically, it's a call to uh, pay attention, take heed. These are important things. These, these are not to be taken lightly. And then in uh, the final part, we have the challenge. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now, that is in Revelation 22, and it is reminiscent of what we have in Genesis, a restored garden and the tree of life. Now, I don't know what that means because the believer has eternal life already. I don't know if that means additional or Uh, It's hard to conceive of fullness of life because it seems like we will have fullness of life. So it must be something even above that, which is hard to conceive. Uh, But that's a challenge or that's a a promise for the overcomer. Well, I was going to look at the overcomer. Let's save it for the next session. Let's take a break. Priority. 
Yeah, I see it as first in priority. In other words, your first love, not so much in time, but your number one priority is the love for the Lord above everything else.